seated, please. Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you be turning to Mark chapter 7 or swiping or whatever you do, opening up, whatever you have in front of you. We're going to be studying for Mark chapter 7 this morning and we'll meet there in just a moment. We're glad that you're here. We're thankful to see several who are back with us have not been able to be with us for a while. It's good to see Mr. Tom uh, back with us and, and several others who can make it out when they're able to. And we're grateful that you are here. It's good to see most of you. Most of you I haven't seen yet, and I need to ex explain that. And uh, it's due to an unfortunate situation in our family, but uh, our dear Caroline did test positive yesterday uh, for COVID, and so the whole family is at home at this time. No one else is showing any symptoms, so I thought I could probably come and just keep my distance and stay away from everyone. So uh, if you don't see me or I don't speak to you, it's not because I'm mad at you. I uh, just kind of keep my distance today and probably uh, not really visit with folks and try to, to uh, keep some of that so we don't want to uh, get anyone else sick and hope that no one else in our family passes it around. So we just wanted to ask for your prayers. She's doing okay, but just wanted to keep everyone at home. And one other note here for our Bible Bowl kids, uh, we were going to have practice this afternoon, but we'll uh, cancel that for today and then pick up those chapters uh, later when we meet, meet again. But it is good to see you. We're thankful that you would be here as we seek to study God's Word uh, for just a few moments and try to encourage ourselves with a particular chapter here from Mark chapter 7. I don't know about you, uh, how you read the Bible, if you've been following along with some of the reading plans that we have put out. Uh, very often you'll read two or three chapters a day if you kind of go through those Bible reading plans that we put together. We didn't put them together, but try to make available for you. If you're like me, sometimes you get behind. When you get behind, you're reading five, six, seven, or eight chapters a day to, to try to get caught up. It makes it a little harder to really read, to understand, and pay attention what's going on. But if you keep up and you kind of maybe read two or three chapters a day, especially as you go through the accounts of the Gospels, according the Gospels, uh, what happened with Jesus there, and as those were recorded for us, then it's very encouraging to take little sections and think about exactly what was happening in the life of Jesus. There's so much that's going on, so many people that are coming to him both to try to trap him and also to try to be healed by him, but you catch little snippets. If you take small sections and you really pay attention to what's going on, you think about who's coming and who's going and that kind of thing and what they're saying, it can be very encouraging. I'd like for us this morning to look at Mark chapter 7, the first 23 verses in particular, because there is a section of scripture here in which we can learn a few things even for ourselves today. Well, there's really three interactions that take place that we're going to look at here. Uh, Jesus speaks to three different groups of people, and we want to break them down and see exactly what we can learn from what takes place here in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 7. There is a, a parallel account in Matthew chapter 15 of what takes place here, but we're going to focus in on Mark chapter 7. Let's look at the first few verses together. Mark records for us, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with, def eat bread with defile, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? 
And he begins in verse number 6 that he answers and says to them, but we'll pause there right now. Because the first interaction that we're going to take a look at this morning is Jesus' discussion here with the Pharisees and scribes. I don't know if discussion is the best word. You know, often people would come and they would try to trap Jesus and ask him these questions to cause a problem. You're probably familiar with the term Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, were a group of people, a group of Jews that kind of came around about 200 years or so before Jesus came to the earth, and they were very strict. They were considered the strictest set of the Jews, strictest group of the Jews. In fact, if you were going to become a Pharisee, you were going to take a pledge, and that pledge would say that you were going to keep every point of the law. But as we see here, as Mark records for us, not just every point of the law, but also the traditions that they had, the traditions that these elders had come up with. You're going to keep all of that. In fact, there's a couple of words that really come to mind as we think about the Pharisees. One is, if you were going to mention the word Pharisee, you usually think of the word legalist. And that's even today. When people will call others Pharisees, what they're meaning is you're a legalist. You you go by the law and you bind law in particular. You will bind law where there is no law. You'll make up laws because of your traditions and hold other people to those laws. And you're a legalist. Now, the other word that we find in Scripture that's usually attached with the word Pharisee is hypocrite. In fact, most often, if you find the word Pharisee in the New Testament, you will see the word hypocrite very nearby because that is what we commonly think of when we think of the word Pharisee. They were play actors. They were wearing a mask, so to speak. They were hypocrites. They were very strict in what they believed. The scribes, of course, were a group of people who would go around writing, transcribing, or writing the law and holding people to all of these laws. But their intention, their job was to follow around Jesus and to try to find fault. Now, not these particular people that we meet here in the first couple of verses, not not these men in particular, but in general. The elders, uh, those who had a sort of higher up authoritative position uh, among the Jews would send these Pharisees and these scribes to follow Jesus and to seek to find fault with him. In fact, Mark records for us in Mark chapter 3 and verse number 2 that they were seeking to accuse him. And then a few verses later, Mark chapter 3 and verse number 6, that they were seeking to destroy him. That's what they're after. Their job was to follow him around, or they would send some here, he would move, they'd send some somewhere else, but to follow him and to find something wrong. Now their point in this particular matter, as they approach him in Mark chapter 7, their point is defilement. The charge that they're going to want to bring against him, and really against his disciples, those with him, is that of defilement. And by defilement, we mean not washing your hands correctly. Now, we're not talking about not washing your hands with soap. Uh, We're not talking about uh, singing happy birthday through twice while you wash your hand to make sure you get rid of all the germs. We're not talking about that. But they are talking about that defilement comes from the not washing your hands and even some of these other things correctly. It's interesting to note, if you know your history, that the Pharisees were essentially afraid of the Gentiles. Right? During this time period, during this part of the world, during this time period, there's pretty much the Jews... And the Gentiles. And if you were a Jew, if you were a Pharisee, maybe in particular, you were afraid of the Gentiles. Now, not afraid that they might overtake you physically or or in a military kind of way that they were going to come after you and take your life. You just didn't want to be near them. You didn't want to touch them. 
you'd be considered dirty if you had been around the Gentiles. And you see that by inspiration. Mark records that for us here at the beginning of Mark chapter 7. He says, and he talks about that, when they come from the marketplace, they don't wash properly. Now, please hear me and understand very carefully, they took this very seriously. I, I mean, we, this is serious business. And this accusation is serious business. You know, I was thinking, if someone came up to me or you and they accused us of something, they're going to accuse us of what? Murder? Uh, theft? Stealing something? Uh, you know, they're going to try to hold something to us that's like serious. That's what they would accuse us of. If someone came up to us and accused us of not washing our hands, we'd probably laugh at them. Uh, you mean that, that's what you're coming at me with is washing my hands properly? But this was a very serious accusation. And there's a couple of ways that we know that. Number one, one thing written for us is William Barclay, the noted theologian, said that there was once a rabbi who had water, but he used his water for his washing, ceremonial washing of things, so much so that it was recorded he almost died of thirst. But he's not going to drink it because he better make sure that he washes everything, including his hands correctly. Not only that, but do you recall in John chapter 2, Specifically, verse number 6, we commonly refer to this as Jesus' first miracle, right? He turned water into wine. Many people are familiar with this. But in John chapter 2, and specifically verse 6, remember as Jesus is going to do this, they notice or get and gather six pots. And it's said by Mark, or, there, or excuse me, by John on that occasion, that there were six pots, each holding somewhere between 20 to 30 gallons. Why would we need... 180 gallons of water and six pots unless we need to always keep things washed. They took this very, very seriously. Having those six pots and washing everything in this ceremonial fashion was a standard Jewish practice. And so this is, even though it may seem silly to us, a pretty heavy accusation. And the Jews lived in fear of contamination by the Gentiles. And so here's their answer to that. Well, we will just go through this ceremony, this ceremonial, ritualistic washing of everything. Were they worried about germs? Maybe, maybe not, not necessarily. But if we just wash everything and we make sure that everyone else does it, and if they don't do it, we're going to accuse them and maybe even punish them, then we'll be good. So that's their point here. That's what they're after. And once they make this question to Jesus, he begins to answer them then in verse number 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, notice there's our word, hypocrites. As it is written, these people draw near or honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. You see, one of the points we can take from this first interaction here is Jesus says to make human law is to violate divine law. To make human law is to violate divine law. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that we should not obey the government, that there cannot be any types of laws or rules that we follow in a general sense. Uh, certainly, we think about the, the teachings of the Bible on government and, and obeying our government. That's part of this. But when we begin to hold people to our traditions, to human laws, and make those, then we are going beyond God's law. What Jesus says here is that, guess what? This was 
foretold. This was known about. In Isaiah chapter 29, in verse number 13, Isaiah prophesies. And if you know your history, Isaiah is prophesying almost 700 years before this moment in Mark chapter 7. But he said, this is coming. And we knew this because this is the way that you were going to act. And Jesus essentially says, in quoting from Isaiah, that these people are giving lip service. They're doing all the right things on the outside. But the result was that they were actually lifting their own traditions above God's laws. And he's going to make that example several times here. And by the way, that's not a new thing. That's not even an old thing. In fact, in some of the reading that I was doing, one of the uh, a preacher who had kind of written about this passage, I was reading what he had to say about this, and he said he knew of a situation. He had been studying the Bible with a lady, and she had been a part of a particular denomination. He didn't mention it, but this particular denomination taught that a person had to be baptized three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, and once for the Spirit. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Not only that, he went on to say that she said they would teach that a person had to be baptized face forward. I, once again, don't know where they're finding any of that. But you would be remiss if you don't think, you'd be wrong if you don't think that people will make traditions and hold people to that and go above and beyond God's law, which is not a good thing. There are certain denominations that sometimes teach that a person can't have caffeine that a person can't have a blood transfusion. We can go on and on with certain things that people will do, traditions that they will make that are passed down, that people will hold to, and they will treat, as we say, they'll treat as gospel. That's the way we say it sometimes, even though it's found nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the Jews had a, a document. If you kind of know any of your Jewish history, it was often called the Mishnah, and there were 63, 63 excuse me, tractates in there. The last 12 of those tractates were addressed to this idea of cleaning. That's how serious they took it, and they thought, they said, they believed they were protecting God's word. But what Jesus is pointing out here is they were really elevating what they said needed to be done above God's word. And he goes on to say, let me illustrate that, beginning in verse number nine. He says, let me give you a real-life example. And there's a word here that you may have heard before, you may have been curious about, but that is Corbin. Now, that's with an A, not with an I. We have our own Corbins over here, but it's not talking about them, okay? Jerry's wiping his brow. He's thankful for that. But this idea of Corbin, Jesus says, hey, let me go further. Let me give you a real-life example. This idea of Corbin, as you read or look at verses 9 through 13 there, what he essentially says is the law of Moses says that you are to honor your father and mother. You remember that? Exodus chapter 20. In fact, Jesus quotes it here, right? Verse number 10. Moses says, Exodus 20 and verse 12, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. He also quotes from Exodus chapter 21 and verse number 17 with the same idea. And we know that even the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 3 would say, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. So the teaching of the Old Testament was that we are to honor our parents. And by the way, there's no timetable on that. You don't get to get to a certain point and say, well, I don't care about them anymore, or I'm not going to care for them anymore. Think about it. There were no government programs. There's no social security. There were no nursing homes. But you know what? It didn't matter because God had a plan. And the plan was we take care of our family. 
Even as children, we take care of our parents when the time comes, and we know. Many of you have been dealing with this, and will deal with it, that the time comes that as your parents took care of you, then you maybe take care of, of them again one day. But here's the problem. Even though God had a plan, the Jews had another plan, right? They had a better plan in their mind. Their plan was this idea of Corban. They had come up with this other scheme, and that scheme was that you could say this word Corban, and you could designate a part of your finances to the temple treasury. And that's kind of what this word means here, Corbin. It means a vow, or it means temple treasury. And it's this idea that I could take a certain portion of my income or my goods and say Corbin and call those Corbin, and then all those things are supposed to be dedicated to God. And then I look at my parents and I say, sorry, guys, I'm out. I'm out of money. I don't have any way to take care of you. And sorry, you're just kind of out of luck right now. So what they're doing is they're taking this teaching, which has nothing to do with what God has said to do, that you would do this and set it aside and you would be then not, able, or not have to take care of your parents anymore. You can tag these finances, so to speak, and they're not to be used for personal things. And you can see, it, it's almost like it, it sounds crazy, you know, to say, well, why would a person do that? But these Jews, these Pharisees, that's exactly what they're doing. And so Jesus says... That to make a human law is to violate divine law. And here's an illustration, this idea of Corbin. But notice at the end of verse number 13, he even says there, and many such things you do. He essentially looks at him and says, you know what? I mean, we're both fully aware of the situation here. I could have picked from a list of things. I mean, there is a myriad of things that I could have chosen from because you guys have a whole long list of traditions that you elevate. But here's just one, and he talks about Corbin there in particular. Now we move on to verse number 14 of this particular passage, and the second interaction that Jesus has is with the multitude, verses 14 through 16. Now, as these Pharisees and these scribes would come to him, I have no doubt in my mind that it had to have been frustrating, right? And I, I tell you this often, I don't mean to be irreverent, I'm not trying to you know, to make light of what Jesus was, who he was, or what he did. But he was human, and probably had some human emotion, even if he didn't sin. And you can imagine that as he would get to a place, and these Pharisees and these scribes come walking up, that we would, especially, probably roll our eyes. I mean, seriously, these guys again coming to say something else? And so he turns his attention from these Pharisees and scribes, who are difficult, who are causing problems, to a more honest group. And it tells us in verse 14 that he called the multitude to himself and he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He essentially says, depending on the version that you're looking at, hearken, hear me. Listen very carefully to the crowd that is gathered there. And it's interesting because there is a hint. Now, these folks aren't going to recognize all of it. We're going to see that with the disciples in just a moment. But there's a hint. The fact that we are here today and we can look back on these writings and these occasions, there's a hint of what's going to come in Acts chapter 10 as Peter is going to have this vision and the gospel is going to be open to the Gentiles, to the whole world. We know that at first the gospel was going just to the Jews. 
to the Jews. And so it's in Acts chapter 10 that Peter has that vision. He goes to Cornelius' household, and then the gospel is opened up. So there's this hint there. Because the other thing that takes place in Acts chapter 10, in Peter's vision, deals with this idea of meat and what people eat and what they put into their body. So they're not going to recognize all of it yet because the time has not come. But there's a bit of a hint that we can look back and see here in verse 15 that Jesus is sort of setting the table, if you will, just a little, to let them know that possibly that there's going to come a time when it's not going to be Jew and Gentile, but it will be Christian. God desires all men everywhere to repent. And so there's a hint of that here as he begins to talk about, hey, guess what? It's not about just what you put in or the meat that you eat. Paul would address that later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the idea that meat, that it's all good if God has given it to us. We should be thankful for it. So not only is the meat going to be okay, in a sense, what you eat, but the Gentiles are not bad either, in a sense. They're going to have a chance to come to repentance and to be saved. So there's a hint of that here as he addresses the multitude. But then thirdly, the third interaction is with his disciples. And it begins in verse number 17. And it says, Mark records for us, when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Now, depending on the version, you may see the word parable there. What takes place here is not necessarily what we commonly refer to as one of Jesus' parables. However, the idea of a parable, of course, is that there is a meaning that goes along with something. Some people would say, and and there's other passages where it talks about the idea that sometimes parables were not understood by everyone. And so here, they're not all going to catch everything that Jesus is saying. But we're then moved into this third interaction, which is a a private moment. You know, I, I really like these. Because it's a a moment where there's no more multitude, there's no more big show, not that Jesus is putting on a show in that sense, but there's no more large crowd, but there's a private moment here between him and his disciples. So they get a moment to ask him, those closest to him, those who would continue his teaching when he's going to be gone very shortly, he has a moment to talk to them. And they're going to ask. I believe in Matthew's account, gives it directly, attributes it directly to Peter. But they're going to ask, Jesus, what are you talking about? We don't understand. And so in verse 18, he begins by asking them this question where we begin to see what is possibly part of his frustration. Why aren't you getting it? How is it that you're still not understanding what I'm saying? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside can not defile a man or defile him? Because it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Most of you know that I use the New King James here most of the time in the pulpit, so some of those words may have sounded different, and unfortunately, we don't have the time this morning to talk about each one of those, but here's the key. Back to our title. What's the point? Why do these kind of connect together? What's taking place in this particular section? Here's the key. Real defilement comes from within. That's what Jesus is teaching, not about the measure of dirt not about how dirty your hands are, not about who you might have been around, but real defilement comes from within. 
In fact, Jesus says the root cause here is that there's a heart problem. I mean, he even uses the word, again, at least it's translated that way in the New King James, as he says that it's the heart. When you take something in, we teach our children, it doesn't go in your heart. Right? It goes through the other proper systems in our body, our digestive tract, it goes into our stomach, and it even leaves our body at some point as we think about the way God designed our bodies. But it does not touch our heart, and thus is not the problem. The root cause is that there is a heart problem. Now here's the thing about this. This is not new teaching, right? I know we're in Mark chapter 7, but think about Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is simply a continuation of what he says in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21, verse 27, 33, 38, 43. Five different times, at least there in the Sermon on the Mount, at, towards the very beginning, he says, You have heard it said, but now I say to you. You have heard it said, don't do the physical act. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Yes, but I'm saying to you, it begins in the heart. And he begins to point out that it's a heart problem. And we have heart problems then, and we have heart problems now, if we're being honest about it. An external change is just that, an external change. You can change your clothes all day. You can take a bath. You can wash your hands. You can do all of those things. But they're just external changes. They don't address the heart problem, the spiritual problem. In fact, Jesus would say of this same group, you recall Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 27. Here we see it again. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. They're connected together, all those words. Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites because you are like whitewashed tombs. There on that occasion, Jesus even uses the word beautiful. He says you're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, just full of dead men's bones. Your outside looks great, but your inside is rotten. And that is a problem that we continue to certainly face today. We often underestimate the importance of our thoughts and our feelings and our innermost moments. We can set those inside and say, well, I'm doing all the right things on the outside. We have been discussing this at great length in our Wednesday night class. We want you to be here. We want you to be a part of our services and the things that we do together. But if you're showing up to sit there in your Sunday best and check a box, your inside can be full of dead men's bones. I can see a crowd that sits here that is beautiful on the outside. But we have to make sure that we take care of our hearts as well. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Whatsoever things are true, are honest, are just, are pure, are lovely, are of good report. That's what you need to be thinking on. That's what should be filling your heart. Not all this other nasty, dirty stuff. Not just who maybe you touch in a physical sense. Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 3 and 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Paul would write, For, we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We've talked before about how we can compartmentalize our lives and we set aside our Christian part and we set aside our, our other parts, our work part or our family part. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. And it is not physical. 
We're not worried about weapons, at least not in a spiritual sense. We're worried about our hearts, making sure that those are pure. Corrupt thoughts lead us to sin. James chapter 1 and verse number 15. James says, When lust hath conceived, and it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. I don't mean to add to add to the Bible with the word lust is used there but could we not go ahead and add in some other things maybe yes lust is part of that but it could be many other evil thoughts some of these other words that Jesus uses and say that when those things conceive they bring forth sin and sin brings about death you see here's the thing the world says that you are what you do right I can't see your insides I can't see your heart I can't tell what's going on in your head So all I see is your outside. And so the world says, well, you are what you do. But Jesus says that you do what you are. That may sound a little trivial, may sound a little trite, but think about exactly what it's saying. Because if what we're saying is true, that real defilement begins in the heart, then it's going to eventually show itself in outward actions. Your actions reflect your heart. You remember in John chapter 13, in verse number 35, Jesus has just taken action. He's just washed the disciples' feet. And he's brought about to them this this action that he's done. And he tells them, you know what he tells them, right? We sing it. John 13, 35, they'll know we are Christians by our love. They're not called Christians yet there, of course. And John 13 is Jesus hasn't died on the cross. But he says, what he says is, they'll know you are my disciples by your love. Well, by your feeling, by the way that you feel on the outside, by how you care about someone, by your love. No, by your actions, by what you do, the love which you show by your actions. That's how they'll know that you are a Christ follower. Think about the list here very quickly again from Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 7. This is, these are serious sins, right? And we talk about the list that Paul puts out there sometimes, but, but these are serious sins. But notice as you look at them again, they're not accidental, right? They're not accidental sins. These are not just things that pop up overnight. You say, oh, I can't believe that I did that. These are not accidental sins. They're not surprises, adulteries, and fornication. You remember what Jesus said there? Once again, it doesn't just happen out of the blue. It just kind of just pop out of nowhere. He said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 28 that now it's about whoever, whosoever looks at a woman. Because you just don't fall into somebody else's arms, at least not in that kind of way in committing those kinds of actions. It's because you have a problem in your heart. And that problem is, as James said, lust. What about murder? As he says here, as Jesus says here in Mark chapter 7. You know, most of us just don't say, Oh, I'm sorry, my gun just fired in your direction. Or I just tripped and stabbed you with a knife and took your life. No, murder begins because you have a hate problem in your heart. What about theft? I just accidentally took that, stuck it in my pocket, and grabbed all these things and took all your money. It doesn't happen by accident. He also lists here in Mark chapter 7, right after it, but covetousness. That's where thefts begin. doesn't just come out of the blue. We have a heart problem sometimes. We have a desire for something else. So the world says you are what you do, but Jesus says you do what you are, what's really going on inside. And most of us can attest to a situation where we thought we knew someone, but then it took a little bit of time, but eventually the truth showed. We could tell who they really are. 
And it frustrates us when other people can't see that, but it's usually found out. Because if we do what we are, and if our heart is rotten, our insides are full of dead men's bones, then that's absolutely what's going to come out. Even if we're pretty good at play acting, being hypocrites like the Pharisees were for a short time. One more passage and we'll be finished. Titus chapter 3. Here's what's ironic. I think this is interesting. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here's what is ironic about that. Paul begins writing to Titus at the beginning of chapter 3, and he talks about some of the evil things that we need not, need not do. Verse 3 in particular, we were once foolish, disobedient, had various lusts and pleasures, but, verse number 4, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, that's what the Pharisees would say, you do enough, you keep every point of the law, you'll be okay, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I find ironic here. After all that said and done, washing is actually still needed, right? Washing is still a part of it. It's not the ceremonial washing. It's not the showy washing where it's like, hey, everybody, watch me. I'm washing my hands. All right, I'm cleaning off all these people that I've been around and all these things. It's not that, but yes, washing is still needed. In fact, we talked about it in a recent sermon, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 11. You have been washed, Paul would say. After all these things that you've done, you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. Washing still needs to take place. But real defilement, it doesn't come from washing the germs, getting the dirt, off our flesh, being around someone, real defilement comes from within. Do you need to change your inside then? Do you need to change your heart? You see, a washing is still needed, but it's the washing in the water of baptism. It's the washing of the blood of Christ that removes our sins. And we're thankful for this opportunity that presents itself here. Even in this moment, we're about to sing this song that's been selected. One of our elders will come here to the front. If you're interested in coming forward and making known your need, maybe it's to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be added to the church by the Lord, to his church, and you can begin to live faithfully. All things are ready. All things are prepared. We're thankful for that opportunity, even as we had a great occasion to take advantage of that last Sunday. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, why not? Do you need to change your inside where real defilement takes place so that your outside maybe looks beautiful, which is great and fine, but your inside looks correct as well and you're faithfully serving God? Maybe you're here this morning and you are a child of God, but you've struggled to remain faithful. You've wandered away, and once again, as one of our elders comes forward in just a moment, you'd like to make it known in a public fashion that you'd like to repent of your sin Confess that before an audience such as this and ask for forgiveness. We're thankful to serve a God who is faithful to do just that, that we can again walk in the light as he is in the light. You see, I can't see your inside. No one else here can see your inside where real defilement takes place, but God can. And so as we are about to sing this song, it's not about getting right with the preacher, not about getting right with the elders. It's about getting right with God in the sense that you are a child of God and that you are living faithfully with him. We assemble here as a body for an opportunity to encourage one another. And we want to encourage you now as we stand together and as we sing.